0: Great. Uh, can I call us back to order? Because time is getting away with us with and I've been having a wonderful discussion but suddenly looked at my watch and gone, ah! <laughs> so I'm calling this, um, in contrast to the problem of evil, I'm calling this the problem of goodness. So there's, there's at least uh, an equal and opposite problem to the problem of evil. Uh, and I actually think it's, it's, it's uh, a harder conundrum, and much better argument, uh, for God, from um, moral value, whether you're talking about something that's good or something that's evil, um, as the um, arguments in the other direction are. Now, here's uh, the really crucial distinction. Uh, moral values um, are either objective or subjective, as the terminology goes, so... Objective things are basically things that are real independently of what you or I or we think about it or believe about it or feel about it. Uh, Objective things are things that are discovered by us rather than invented by us. So... um, The Eiffel Tower is an objective reality. Um, It's not just an idea in our minds. It doesn't exist just because we believe it does. Um, If we were somehow to uh, brainwash everybody in the world to believe that there is no Eiffel Tower, there'd still be an Eiffel Tower there in in Paris. It's an objective thing. Um, Now, our moral values, objective realities... They're obviously not physical realities if they're real. But are they objective in the sense of being things that we discover are true rather than make true, as it were, by inventing them ourselves? Are they things that are, are true independently of whether or not we believe in them or feel well disposed towards them? So the moral argument, there's a couple of ways you can put it. You could say Um, If objective moral values exist, then a god must exist. I've put small g here because the argument doesn't try to prove everything that a theist believes about god. It only gives part of the picture, as most arguments do. Premise two, objective moral values do exist. If both of those premises are true, then it follows necessarily that therefore... God exists Um, another very common way of putting it is just to to change around that first premise slightly and say if God does not exist then objective moral values don't exist but objective moral values do exist therefore God does exist it's the same argument just a slightly different way of putting it Um, and it's quite nice to put it that way because you can quote, as I will, again, lots of atheists and agnostics uh, who agree with this premise here. You can also quote lots of atheists and agnostics who agree with this premise here. What you tend not to find, of course, is any atheists or agnostics who accept both of those premises because if they did, they wouldn't be atheists or agnostics anymore. They'd have to believe in God. So as It's the conundrum. The way I like putting it is, you know, atheists aren't wrong about everything. And here are a lot of atheists arguing that that's true. And here are a lot of atheists arguing that that's true. And of course, the ones who think this is true tend to think that's not true. And the ones who think this is true tend to think that that's not true. So that they can consistently remain non-believers. But supposing both of these groups of non-believers are half right in the right kind of way then they're both fundamentally wrong about the existence of God this is a logically valid argument as a philosopher would say that means if those two truth claims in premise one and premise two are true then that conclusion must be true um, and so the only sensible questions to raise about this argument is, well, are those premises true? This isn't like that logical problem of evil argument where the the conclusion that there can't be a God didn't really follow from the premises that went before. This conclusion does follow from the premises. And it's really, really important in discussions about this to get clear that this is an issue... I'll put it in high-fluting language here. This is an issue about what's real in terms of moral values. It's not an issue of how do we know about moral values. It's a question about the, the type of reality that moral values have and how you explain them. It is not an argument about our ability to know the difference between right and wrong let alone an argument about our ability to do the right thing even if we don't believe in god um, as paul copan christian philosopher puts it belief in god isn't a requirement for being moral the existence of a personal god is crucial for a coherent understanding of objective morality uh, this is St. Paul's view uh, from Romans chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, where he says, uh, When Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have the revelation of the law, so that they can know what the right and wrong thing to do is, do by nature things required by the law. They are law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing now even defending them so since Christian scriptures are very clear that you don't have to believe in God you don't have to believe in a particular revelation from God in order to either know what the right or wrong thing to do is or to do the right thing at least some of the time, you know, and that, that's true of all this, and others does it all the time. Uh, it was interesting that this issue came up in conversation just a few moments ago about this issue I, I presented last week as well about the kind of scientistic view that the only way to know anything is through science. And of course, if you hold to that view of how we know stuff, you will say that we don't know anything about morals generally speaking, because it's pretty obvious that we don't know moral truths through science. New atheist Sam Harris thinks otherwise, but that's a whole other talk to go into um, why he's wrong about that. You can ask me a question if you want to. Uh, Nancy Piercy puts and there was a nice little diagram sort of lifted from her book, Saving Leonardo, and she says, the strict separation of facts from values. Have you heard people talking about, you know, there are facts and there are values? This is the key, the key to unlocking the history of the modern Western mind. People have always known that there's a distinction between is and ought. Between what uh, you are and what you should be, that's descriptive statements or normative statements. In earlier ages, however, people thought both type of statements dealt with questions of truth. If you make a moral statement about what somebody ought to do, it was either true or false. But people who make this separation between facts, usually things that we can know by science, and then morals, well, that's just values, that's just opinions, that's just subjective. Um, And that's the wrong kind of way of cutting up. That way of cutting up reality, as it were, begs all sorts of questions about the kind of things that moral values are and the kind of way in which we can know things. Um, This is atheist Peter Atkins from his book On Being. Peter Atkins will be debating uh, in Manchester with William Lane Craig in October, which I'm looking forward to very much. And he says in his new book, Classic Expression of Scientism, he says, the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge which of course the immediate question back is how do you know that by the methods of science um, well here's uh, a little uh, video clip I should have the volume turn up here that will hopefully play uh, of the last time that William Lane Craig and Peter Atkins were in debate. Uh, so it's a little bit of an old video, this, but uh, it's a really good little interaction in the sort of Q&A time. They had a bit of a discussion between Craig and Atkins on this very issue about uh, scientism and moral values and so on. it will crop up in here. But, but,
1: but, but do you deny that science cannot account for everything? No, yes, I do, you, do you deny that science... So what can't it account for? Well, I haven't brought that up in the debate. I had a number of examples that I was going to give. Uh, I think there are a good number of things that cannot be scientifically proven, but that we were all rational to accept. Let me list five. Logical and mathematical truths cannot be proven by science. Science presupposes logic and math, so that to try to prove them by science would be arguing in a circle. Uh, But there are two minds other than my own, or the external world of freedom, or that the tax was not created five minutes ago from the appearance of age are rational, beliefs that cannot be scientifically proven. Ethical beliefs about statements of value by the scientific method. You can't show by science whether the Nazi scientists in the camps did anything evil as opposed to the science of Western democracy. Aesthetic judgments, number four, cannot be accessed by the scientific method because the beautiful likelihood cannot be scientifically proven. And finally, most remarkably, would be science itself. Science cannot be justified by the scientific method. Science is permeated with Unprovable assumptions. For example, in the special theory of relativity, the whole theory hinges on the assumption that the speed of light is constant in a one-way direction between two points A and B. But that It cannot be proven. You simply have to assume that in order to hold the theory. Of but I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you have, none of these beliefs can be scientifically proven, and
0: yet they are accepted by rather thorough demolition of a scientific position and that the look on Atkins' face is just priceless, isn't it? Um, so um, one would want to be wary of that kind of scientific viewpoint getting in the way of mounting this kind of argument, but it's uh, fairly easily downable. So let's look at the two premises in turn. Premise one, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Now, an objective moral fact is uh, a moral ideal, um, something that you should strive to attain, to exhibit, as it were, an ideal. It's an ideal that prescribes and not merely describes behaviour. I'm not just describing what is the case when I say you shouldn't torture small children for fun. If that statement is true it's something that prescribes how you should behave how you ought to behave whether or not you are behaving like that and it's also a moral objective fact would be something that obligates behavior surely if it's true that you oughtn't to torture small children just for the fun of it then not torturing small children for the fun of it is something that we are obligated not to do so there are these different aspects of an objective moral fact, if there are any. It's an ideal that prescribes and obligates. And these all seem to be things that are much better explained, at the very least, in terms of reference to a personal God than not. Um, surely an idea, an ideal, requires a mind... In which to exist. Surely a a prescription requires a prescriber. Surely an obligation requires someone to whom you are obligated. This um, projector is incapable of obligating me. Only a personal reality is capable of obligating me as H.P. Owen, Welsh philosopher, Hugh Parry Owen I got into him when I was at Cardiff University and I had some of his books in the library there he said on the one hand objective moral claims transcend every human person, they don't depend upon what you or I or we happen to believe or think or decide or feel, if they're objective they transcend every human person on the other hand it's contradictory to assert that impersonal claims are entitled to the allegiance of our wills. I can't be obligated by my evolutionary history, say, or the universe. The only solution to this paradox, argues Owen, is to suppose that the order of objective moral claims is in fact rooted in the personality of God. So on the one hand, the fact that Moral values are objective, means you can't explain them just by referencing you or me or us and what we happen to think and believe and feel because they're objective, they don't depend on us. But the fact that their moral prescriptions and obligations and ideals only seems to be explicable in terms of personhood. Now, a person that transcends humanity. To whom we are obligated starts to sound an awful lot like part of at least what people mean by God. Uh, atheist Frederick Nietzsche with a fantastic moustache. Um, so when one gives up the Christian faith, we can tell when one gives up belief in God, one pulls the right to Christian morality, or objective morality, indeed, out from under one's feet. Uh, Christianity is a system, the whole view of things, thought out together by breaking one main concept out of it, the faith in God, one breaks the whole. It, i.e. objective morals, stands or falls with faith in God, says Nietzsche. Um, Jean-Paul Sartre, the French existentialist, famous in the uh, 50s and 60s and so on, Uh, says existentialists find it extremely disturbing that God no longer exists that he's no longer believable according to him for along with God's disappearance goes the possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven this kind of transcendent realm of objective values there'd no longer be any a priori good good that's just there since there'd be no infinite and perfect consciousness to conceive of it uh, atheist William Provine, um, you can see the linkage he makes between there are no gods, blah, 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 no ultimate foundation for ethics. Um, as he's saying, he's describing his naturalistic worldview and saying it excludes moral values. Richard Dawkins, I had this quote last week, the universe that we observe is precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no creation, no God, no evil. No good. Nothing but pitiless indifference. And he says elsewhere, it is pretty hard to defend absolutist morals uh, morals on grounds other than religious ones. Julian Bugini uh, if there is no single moral authority, I know God, we have to in some sense create values for ourselves. And that means that moral claims are not true or false. You may disagree with me, but you cannot say that I have made a factual error. You know? Okay. Hitler thinks exterminating six million Jews is the right thing to do. We think it's the wrong thing to do. We're obviously disagreeing, but we can't say that one or other of us is right and the other one wrong about this, that someone has made a factual error. Germachie therefore said if there are objective values they make the existence of a God more probable than it would be without them. We had that uh, earlier. So there are plenty of atheists who recognise this kind of cup and saucer linkage between God and objective moral values. And here's what Mackie does as a result. He says if we adopted instead a subjectivist account of morality this problem would not arise. Okay, I can escape from the whole God issue by being a moral subjectivist. So this is where the rubber hits the road, um, which is really the bigger problem, as it were, which is the the price tag that you're not prepared to pay. Having to believe that a God exists or having to believe that moral subjectivism is true. He pays you money, he takes your choice, as it were. Promise two: objective moral values really do exist. Here's a little video from the Demaris Trust. I use this with six form students, and it features uh, Luke Pollard, uh, who's the son of my boss, Nick Pollard, at the Demaris Trust. And Luke's just graduated uh, this year from Oxford Uni, uh, studying philosophy and theology. And here's him talking about um, issues in the burden of proof. Who has the burden of proof about philosophical questions like? our objective, moral value, is real or not. In philosophy, we talk a lot about burden and truth. Often when we're confronted with a claim that may or may not be true. We have to establish whose burden it is to prove it, one way or the other. Take the example of me. Clearly remembering having it lunch. Now it seems obvious to me that someone who believes I didn't eat lunch would have to prove that I didn't rather than me trying to prove that I did. The burden of proof would be on the other to disprove my claim in this instance and the presumption of truth lies with me. Now there are all sorts of things that that applies to but I think one of the things that that applies to and there's been a lot of discussion about this uh, would be moral values would be claims like well, it certainly seems to me to be the case that torturing small children for fun is wrong, objectively wrong it 's not just my own private predilection that I happen not to like that you know uh, if you think that that 's okay, then you 're wrong about that. you know um, it certainly seems that way, and surely at the very least then that puts the burden of proof on the person who wants to say no, no, there aren't objective moral values although most people th- have thought through most of history that that's the case they're actually deluded about that and here's why and they'd have to give a sufficiently good argument against objective moral values for subjectivism to carry the day it's kind of their, the opposition's task to give an argument, as it were given that it's just so intuitively obvious that certain things are right and certain things are wrong. Of course there are hard cases um, but that doesn't detract from the fact that there are clear cases. So you could just argue like this, I've I've just got this basic, properly basic intuition as a philosopher would say that torturing a baby for fun is wrong. This is a classic kind of extreme obvious clear case that philosophers like picking on. So you could say, premise one, if anything is objectively wrong, moral subjectivism is false, because that claims that nothing is objectively right or wrong. Two, torturing a baby just for the fun of it is something that's objectively wrong. Three, therefore subjectivism is false. Um, And the burden of proof is on the person who wants to doubt premise two, which is the crucial premise, since this one, premise one, is kind of true by definition. Moreover, stick the the blade in a bit further here. I think there is this connection between morality and rationality. I think it's obvious from phrases that we use in everyday life, like "Oh, come on, be reasonable." You might get exasperated at someone, some pupil or student or whatever, um, for not pulling their socks up and being as reasonable as they ought. To try to be in the situation and so on, a moral subjectivist, someone who thinks there aren't any objective moral values, surely would contradict themselves, were they to claim that people objectively ought to believe the conclusion of any argument they want to give us for believing in moral subjectivism. <laughs> what you know, arguments are things that that if there are good ones you know, and we pay attention to them and surely we ought to, at least pay atten- ought to at least pay attention to them if we think it's a good argument a good enough argument then we ought to allow that to change our mind we ought not to dig our heels in and, and um, put up a smokescreen and come up with just any old objection that we can find as so long as you know, it helps us avoid the conclusion no matter what um, and make people ex- you know, exasperated until they get into that point point of say oh come on you know, be reasonable but how can you give arguments for moral subjectivism when the conclusion of moral subjectivism was one that says there are no obligations, objectively speaking, including rational obligations. This is one of the contradictions within the New Atheism that we looked at last week, um, indeed. So there can't be sufficient counter-evidence to the intuitively obvious nature of of moral values if you're saying this is one of those things that it's reasonable to believe until given sufficient reason to doubt, the burden of proof is on the opposition but this is a burden of proof that can't be met because as soon as you say I've met the burden of proof there aren't any moral obligations you realise well I'm not obligated to believe you then I'm not obligated to listen to your argument to pay any respectful attention um that seems a, a difficulty for me. If you embrace moral subjectivism, in other words, you end up in the position again, Frederick Nietzsche here, who said this. he said, Why should you pay attention to the truth? Why use what's true as a criteria for what you're going to believe? Why not you know use what makes you feel happy, what works for you, etc?" Why be, why all this concern about truth? You know? Well, because there's a linkage between morals and rationality, and we ought to seek the truth. Yes, if someone knows how to put light on the, the, the dusk is fallen upon us. I'm beginning to squint at you all in the glooming here. yeah. yeah. So see, Carl Nielsen, using this kind of burden of proof argument, he's saying, moral truisms, like, you know, the Holocaust was evil, torturing small children for fun is wrong, are as available to me or any atheist as they are to the believer. Absolutely they are. He says, you can be confident of the truth of moral utterances. They are more justified than any sceptical philosophical theory that would be lead you to question them. Peter Cave says the same thing. Um... Whatever sceptical arguments might be brought against our belief that killing the innocent is morally wrong, we're more certain that killing is morally wrong than that the argument for subjectivism is true. It's just such an obvious basic belief that it's too big a burden of proof for the sceptic to meet. Um, Ross Schaeffer-Landau makes a slightly different point about moral progress. It says societies can get better. Some societies are better than others. You know, when America gave up um, slave ownership, it became a morally better society for doing that. Um, but you can only really believe that if you believe in an objective standard that, that that society had got closer to. Otherwise, all that happened is something changed, but the very concept of progress. Involves a standard, a goal, a destination that you're getting closer to, something independent of the situation itself that's brought closer by that change. Uh, So the subjectivists can believe that societies change, but they can't believe that they get better. Uh, And that seems a pretty bitter pill uh, to swallow. Which brings us back to our argument. There is one classic objection to this. Uh, there are several, of course, but this is, the, I think, the classic objection. Um, and I always find it a bit hard to pronounce. This is, uh, I think this is David's painting of, the, uh, of Socrates about to drink the hemlock when he was sentenced to death by Athens uh, for uh, misleading the young and getting them all questioning their elders and so on. Uh, and it's from a dialogue in which Socrates features as a character uh, written by his student Plato, and the dialogue is called uh, Euthyphro. And this objection, this question in this dialogue has come to be known as the Euthyphro uh, objection. Socrates asks, and it, of course it's in the context of a polytheistic religious uh, society, and he asks, is what is holy, what's good, is what's holy holy because the gods approve it or do they approve it because it is holy? Is what is holy holy because the gods approve it or do they approve it because it is holy? Do they make it holy by approving it or do they merely recognise its holiness? And thus approve it. Now this question, and we can kind of translate that pretty easily into a one God kind of question. Does God approve of what's right because it's right? Or does does he make it right by approving of it? The question poses a dilemma. Are God's moral commandments arbitrary? Because he just makes things right or wrong by approving or disapproving of them or is there some standard of goodness some objective standard of goodness independent of God's commands or the fact that God prescribes it or obligates us to behave in a certain way and so on now we either ground these objective moral values in God's commands or not and if we ground them in God's commands, then morality becomes arbitrary. I mean, he could have commanded the opposite. So it could have been the case that rape was a good thing. It just happens to be the case that God said, it doesn't, you know, don't do that. Um, but if we don't ground morality in God's commands, then morality must be independent of God's commands. In which case, why bring God into our explanation of morality. Surely God's beside the point. You may have spotted where this goes off the rail. And here's where it goes off the rails. Moral values, objective moral values, can be independent of God's commands or his choices or some aspect of his being and character without thereby being independent of God, full stop. They can be independent of some aspect of God's reality without thereby being completely independent of anything to do with God. By being part and parcel of the divine nature would be a good way to express this, to say, okay, God commands or approves of certain actions and disapproves and commands against certain actions because they are wrong but the fact that they are wrong is not something that's independent of God although it is something that's independent of the fact that God commands it because it's just part and parcel of God's character that those things are Wrong. The R being wrongness of it, as it were, that's part of God's essential nature. Um, William Lane Craig puts it like this. He says, Plato himself, interestingly enough, saw the solution to this objection. You split the horns of the dilemma by formulating a third alternative, namely, God is the good. The standard of goodness, his character is the standard of goodness The good uh, is the moral nature of God himself That is to say God is necessarily holy, loving, kind, just and so on And these attributes of God comprise the good God's moral character expresses itself towards us In the form of certain commands and obligations and so on which become for us our moral duties. Hence, God's commandments are not arbitrary, but necessarily flow from his own nature. So, you invoke God's prescriptions to explain the prescriptive nature of moral duties and values. You invoke God's personhood to explain the obligatory nature of moral truths. You you invoke God's necessary character to explain the ideal nature of what moral values are. And the Euthyphro objection basically tries to sort of confuse the ways in which different aspects of moral reality relate to different aspects of God. And the most fundamental is just the something being good or bad is just, is it in line with God's essential character which isn't an arbitrary thing it's like as if God could have had a different character because he's a necessary being and that's where you get our uh, argument there we go uh, ten minutes for questions and then we're done could that, uh, to be objective to be be universally accepted and to determine the Yeah. and therefore evolutionary you know, an biologists will argue for a biological imperative to actually drive us yes. in society not to torture babies or anything else. Yeah. Uh, I agree. Yes. Um, so uh, being objective is not the same thing as being universal. So if everybody accepted the same subjective moral standards, and there were no objective moral standards. You know, that description shows that it's possible for something to be universally held or universally shared without being an objective fact, an objective truth. On um, the issue of um, explaining our moral beliefs or behavior or propensities to behave this way or that, uh, tendencies to feel repulsed or disgusted by certain behaviours or attracted to other behaviours in terms of an evolutionary history, even granting everything that the question might want to assume about evolution, and I can put that whole discussion to one side, um, it's not addressing the issue that the moral argument is addressing. It's making this confusion between the questions of how do we know that and what kind of reality is the moral value because if you say okay so the way in which God arranged for us to have the moral law written on our hearts as Paul says was that we would be have certain feelings and desires and so on inculcated into us by our evolutionary past fine you know okay God could do it by that roundabout route if he wanted to I suppose you know um, but that's only addressing, addressing questions of, well, how come I feel that torturing small children for fun is wrong? Or how come I don't tend to go around torturing small children a lot? Say, so, well, because it, you know, it wasn't useful in your evolutionary past to do that. But it's only when you say, and that's all there is to it. it evolution... He gave you these feelings because it was useful that you had these feelings and that's all there is to the story, to be said. Well then, what you're really doing is denying that there are objective moral values. You're saying all there is is the material world and the way it happens to have turned out and the feelings it happens to have given you because they're useful and useful is not the same thing as true. Uh, And there are no objective moral facts. So actually, what the 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 sort of evolutionary kind of morality objection is doing is changing the topic and really denying that there are objective moral values if they say evolution full stop or it's completely neither here nor there if they say evolution and maybe something else or maybe not. But that's a that's the question. That is there something else to it? that's addressed by the moral argument by saying well, no, actually there is this dimension of, of our moral feelings are they, are they true or not? I feel that rape is wrong maybe that's because unbridled rape has not been evolutionary advantageous um, interesting question um, maybe not but I have this feeling that it's wrong is that feeling correct or not correct about the facts of the matter is, is it actually wrong and then you're on to the, the objective issue that the moral argument is actually addressing um, and the whole evolutionary ethics discussion is kind of going on in the next room as far as the moral argument is concerned
1: the last bit of that, mm. you're saying um, <coughs> the evolutionary approach denies the objective moral value.
0: If you say that, that's all there is to the story. Yeah, it's, it's when you add the full stop.
1: Isn't that they're happy then? Because they don't. You say that if they don't exist, then God doesn't exist, and that's great.
0: Uh, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, certainly. I mean, obviously, the way, to, the way to avoid the conclusion of this argument, it's a logically valid argument. To avoid the conclusion, you have to deny one or other or both of the premises. So if you deny that there are objective moral values, that means you get away with not having to accept the conclusion. The, the question is... Is that a price you're willing to pay? To ever, is it really more plausibly true than false that there are no objective moral values? That torturing small children or raping or the holocaust is not wrong, objectively speaking, but just something that we have a difference of opinion about? <laughs> um, and anyway, any argument that they want to give us for accepting moral subjectivism for denying the premise that there are objective moral values... Seems uh, to me, in a certain way, self-defeating because surely the whole point of them giving, trying to give me an argument for supporting their opinion that premise two is wrong, is that if I, as I ought to, pay respectful attention to their argument and think that it's a sound one and convincing, then I should change my mind and come to believe what they do. And yet, it's a position that says there there is no should ought objectively speaking that's obligating or prescribing that I behave in that way why should you ask Nietzsche believe in truth believing in God makes me much more comfortable and happy I'm still going to do that what's wrong with that well from the subjectivist's viewpoint nothing (laughs) my hypothesis (laughs) why do you think then that that seems to be driving what is happening in society because more and more, mm. you know, building from a base where, you know, historically a nation was built on certain values, which yeah. helped to be objective, mm. we're driving more and more down the road of you do whatever you think is good for you, you know, mm. good for me, as long as it doesn't affect you. And so yeah. You need to do what, uh, and this, this is. More and more, it, maybe that's more of a sociological issue Ish question, but even when you put the caveat, as many people do of course so long as you're not affecting others well is that a caveat something that they, they that that's at least one objective moral fact that they're holding on to, they're saying there aren't really any objective moral facts apart from the objective fact that whatever I do in my life oughtn't to impinge on someone else's freedom to behave the way, but they're still then signing up to an, an objective fact um uh, so they might be constricting the number of objective moral beliefs they believe in. I think a lot of people probably don't think about the issue. I think a lot of people are going on on, on that sort of inbuilt, written-on-the-heart-gut-instinct, uh, affected and filtered through societal changes and so on, um, that Paul's talking about. Um, so I, I think I'd say, I mean, I think a lot of people... When push comes to shove, will recognize the objectivity of, of morals. Uh, and society grabs up. So when something like this shooting that just happened in Norway happens, you know, you inevitably get the press stories grabbing for the word evil uh, and some little ponderment about, you know, society doesn't really believe in right or wrong anymore, but there doesn't seem to be any term that really does justice to what's just happened apart from evil and does this mean that we need to recover our sense of you know that journalistic trope happens time and time and time again doesn't it so that discussion seems to be a sort of unrolling on, un, ongoing um, issue um and when something that's just such a clear case that really kind of rubs people's noses in in evil or goodness happens then there is a recognition there um Built into the human heart, I think. Um, so perhaps you know, there's a tendency for for that to be overlooked in a position of how do I escape from the conclusion of this argument that's driving me to a conclusion that I don't really want to accept. <laughs> um, that's when. Each individual has to ask themselves, you know, what kind of philosophical existential price tag am I really prepared to pay to get out of believing in God? And some people might be prepared to pay that. And if they are, well, hey, what can you do? <laughs> um, <laughs> keep praying for them and loving them and, <laughs> you know, showing them goodness and... <laughs> You know, yeah.